Boston Book Festival, we believe in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. Listen as authors Alan Light, Walter Holland, and John Seabrook discuss what makes a song a hit with WBUR's host, Von Point, Tom Ashbrook. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Steve Orstalio, and I'm a member of the Boston Book Festival Board of Directors. Please join me in welcoming our moderator for hits, hooks, and jam bands, the host of On Point on WBUR, Tom Ashbrook. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming out on kind of a chilly gray day. It's, uh, it doesn't feel chilly in here. If books are the great conversation of humanity with itself, then books plus music must be even the greater conversation of humanity with itself. And that's why we're here today. We have three takes on popular music. Uh, the songwriter take, Prince. The jam band take, Fish. And the latest, really potent and fascinating take, it's got a lot of history, but it's new, how, the way it's done now, the factory take, which John Seabrook is going to talk to us about today. I've had a chance to see all of these books. They are really terrific. You're in for a great treat. Let me introduce with me on the stage, right here, Alan Light. He was senior editor of Rolling Stone, former editor-in-chief of Vibe and Spin magazine. His book is Let's Go Crazy, Prince and the Making of Purple Rain. He worked hard on it. Let's give it up for Alan Light. <laughs> Next, Walter Holland. Walter Holland loves fish. You may love fish. You may have traveled thousands of miles to be here today just because you saw the word fish. And it was like a natural response. He's been to, I think, 30 fish concerts. Anybody in the hall can beat that? No? All right. Then you have something to learn. Fishes, a live one, is his book. Please give it up for Walter Holland. (laughs) And finally... John Seabrook, the wonderful staff writer at The New Yorker, who we have read on so many subjects, so brilliantly rendered, this time uh, an unexpected one to me, but brilliantly told story that will help us understand how the heroine goes in these days, and I mean the musical heroine of top 40 uh, hits right now, or I almost said hooks, and it's all about hooks. I've talked with him on the show about this, and I'm delighted to have a chance to talk with him again today. John Seabrook's book is The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory. Please welcome John Seabrook. They're each going to talk to us a little bit just to give us the heart of their book, what they're up to in this work, and then we'll have a chance to chat with each other on stage, maybe weaving together these three fascinating streams of musical creativity, and then we'll bring you in as well. So if you've got questions, bear them in mind. We will come to you. Let's start right off with John Seabrook. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Yes, I've always been a Billboard chart reader uh, from my early days. I love looking at Billboard charts, and one of the most interesting facts about the Billboard charts is the number of number one singles that various songwriters have written. The number one of all time songwriter, you might not be surprised, is Paul McCartney. He has 32 Billboard number one uh, singles. Uh, the number two, you're not going to be surprised either because it was his songwriting partner, John Lennon. He has 26. But the third guy, you might actually not know who he is. And so I wanted to play uh, a medley of 21 of his hooks, the hooks from his songs, 
and then I'll talk about who that person is. So can we, can we go ahead and cue that? I have the power. You will not recognize any of these. And I apologize to God in advance. I want it that way. Okay, so this Who channel. Is that? Beethoven? Sibelius? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> it's not Beethoven, you know. Uh, his name, is, not his real name, but his sort of disco name is Max Martin. His real name is Carl Martin Sandberg. Uh, he's a Swede. Uh, he's 44 years old. He's been doing this, well, you can see how long he's been doing this from Hit Me Baby One More Time to I Can't Feel My Face. This is essentially 20 years. Unprecedented run as a hit maker. And my book, kind of, he's, he's the main character. He's a bit of a shadow character, just like he is in these songs, because he's very uh, serious about remaining anonymous. If you're a ghost writer in this business, it's, it's very good to remain anonymous, because most people want to think that the artists write the songs. We think that Taylor Swift writes all those songs. Uh, she might write the words. Uh, but uh, the hooks are, are, are this guy's property. And, and so the book is also about how these songs are made and how that has changed songwriting, at least at the pop level. Um, most of us think of songs as being created by a melody writer and a lyric writer, sort of sitting around a piano, banging out a tune. Then it gets arranged and produced and instru instrumentation gets added. These songs are actually re made in exactly the opposite way. They're basically produced first, so a producer uh, creates a track on a computer, uh, and by the way, all of these songs are made on computers. Uh, there may be an occasional instrument played, but it's more likely to be a sample that was already on the computer. Uh, so a producer creates uh, a track, which is the, the chord progression and the beats, the instrumentation, and the arrangement is basically done by the software. So you're, you're programming it, you're not really playing, although it doesn't mean that it's less creative. Then you get what's called a top-line writer coming in, or a hook writer, and or you send it out over the internet, probably more likely, and sometimes these producers will send a single track to up to 50 different melody or hook writers, and they'll get 50 different hooks back, and they can select the right one. 
or in the, in the case of the top hook writers, and I, my book it profiles one named Esther Dean, who does a lot of the Rihanna songs, they bring them into the studio, and I watch this process happen in the book. It, it's actually kind of magical. They play, they would sit her down, play a bunch of different tracks, and then she would hear something that she liked. She would go into the, the vocal booth, um, and just start making these kind of subverbal grunts and groans. Somebody said to me later it was a little bit like the way a baby learns language. It sort of starts out as these kind of subverbal sounds and then slowly would coalesce into a musical phrase and that was the hook. And, and she knew when she got it because you get a chill on the back of her arm. And that's like a million dollar chill or more than a million dollar chill in, in the case of a lot of these songs. And, and, and then the words get at it. So the words come last. And one of the reasons I think the Swedes, and Max Martin has not, it's not just him, but he has a whole team of people, have been so successful in this realm, is that they're pretty good at speaking English, but they're not that good at speaking English. And therefore, they'll write a hook like, hit me baby one more time which no American song, it sounds like an ode to domestic violence. Uh, But, you know, he's just trying to use the latest lingo for call me up, but he got it kind of wrong, but that kind of made it good. Uh, So, uh, and I'd say say one other thing, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let these guys talk, that the Swedes have done, and the reason the Swedes have been successful is, I think in our country, we grew up in this sort of balkanized pop and R&B world, which is obviously has got a long history of racial separation. And for a white guy, a white songwriter in America to write R&B is kind of a tough thing to, to do. But in Sweden, no problem. You know, a white guy wants to write R&B. And that's kind of what these guys did. They sort of sat down to write R&B songs. And what came out was this kind of hybrid of Euro pop and R&B. But it's basically become the kind of rhythmic, dancey music you hear on the radio. You know, these songs and all the songs like them. If you listen to Stereos for XM, for example, they've changed. They, they call Venus their rhythmic pop. I think it's, I, I like to, I'm promoting the term R&P. That that's what they've created, rhythm and pop. Anyway, um, that's my little presentation, and I'll Wonderful. talk more with you if you would like to talk later. <laughs> John Seabrook, The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory. That's where we live right now. If you touch Top 40 Radio, it comes out of that factory. There are many other ways to do it, many other ways it has been done. Uh, you want to talk about catalytic... Well, here's a description of fish. Um, what, a mix of acid, psych, ambient moonscapes, vaudevillian, Americana, riotous, arena rock energy all filtered through... Band leader Trey Anastasio's screwball compositional sensibility and the band's idiosyncratic approach to spontaneous group creativity. Quite the opposite of the factory song. Uh, and it's all in Walter Holland's book, Fishes, a live one. Welcome, Walter. We've got a clip of them. Cleanse our palate or change it. What are we yeah. going to hear? Well, you, you may need a palate cleanser after it, actually. Um, in, keeping with the, in keeping with the theme of the, of the day, um, I have two 45-second clips, one faintly embarrassing. They're going to cover Purple Rain. Um, You'll watch Alan get all excited. As a a tribute. Um, And then the second one, uh, to sort of wash the sour taste of that out of your mouth, is them in their elements playing music that uh, basically nobody else plays anymore, if anyone really did. Um, So the second song is called Reba, and they're both from this era about 20 years ago when uh, this album, The Live One, was recorded. Fish, two ways. Take them away. (laughs) 
that was the single most well-timed freeze in the history of YouTube. <laughs> what, is, is it going on? We don't know. Let me hit it again. I couldn't see. Do they all have the ass pockets cut out of their jeans in honor of Prince? God only knows what okay. they have going on. I mean, they've always looked a bit... Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it at the Boston Book Festival. <laughs> um, is he moving in slow-mo, or is this like acid-laced uh, water? He, <laughs> I'm, I am not sure. He, so what the fellow in the Moo Moo, who is the band's drummer, he is self-taught. He is a troglodyte named John Fishman, after whom the band is named. Um, he is playing an old Electrolux vacuum cleaner. And, um, you know. As, as you do, we've all been there. Right. Uh, in Sweden, actually, all children are taught to do this uh, as part of the, it's the nanny state. Um, so he shapes his mouth in order to sort of shape the, uh, the pitches, and he can actually play melodies. So at the climax of that section of the song, he's actually playing Prince's falsetto from Purple Rain, that amazing... He, and he does that. And uh, if you don't like the band, it is a nightmare. Even if you do like the band, it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, <laughs> And uh, so the, 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 the album, A Live One, came out 20 years ago this year. It came out about a month before Jerry Garcia passed on, um, unrelatedly. <laughs> and uh, it is a huge seller. It turns out it, it was a platinum album. It was their first. It was certified platinum not long after it came out, actually. Um, if you went to college in the mid or late 90s, you heard it wafting on a haze of weed smoke out of a nearby dorm room yeah. at some point, as I did while I was hacky-sacking on the, the commons at MIT like a fool. Um, and uh, if you, But if you weren't sort of part of this world, then Fish probably exists for you, if at all, as a punchline. They are self-indulgent, noodling hippies. They are, as, uh, as our rock press tends to put it, they are the heirs to the Grateful Dead's legacy of lysergic noodling. They are the Pied Pipers of the acid generation, blah, blah, blah. Um, and in fact, what they are are four nerds from the Northeast. Uh, they're relatively financially secure. Um, and what they would do for the first 10 years of their career is that they would go into a practice room, they would take one or another recreational drug, and then they would play hard for about 10, 12 hours straight, and they would do this every single day. Um, and what they would practice, uh, in addition to these immensely complex Baroque compositions that the guitarist was writing, which is the first thing that you heard, they would practice improvisation, they would practice methods for collective improvising, um, and they would do things like uh, one member of the band would start playing a phrase, the, uh, the next guy in the circle, they'd be in the dark sitting in a circle, uh, the next guy in the circle would need to play a counter melody without overlapping a single note. 
Uh, when they felt locked in, the third guy would, would, was meant to sense when they felt they were locked in. And if he was in tune with them, he would then slowly come in, playing, filling the remaining holes in the line. And then the fourth one, even if it were the drummer, would then come in with a fourth counter melody. And when everybody felt that everybody else in the room was fully locked into the groove that was evolving, they would all say, hey. And um, this, was, this was one of their, uh, their early practice room exercises. This is demented. This is a really strange way for 20-year-olds to spend their time. Um, uh, not to them, apparently. Uh, and the drummer has said that when they were at their peak of practicing, they could all reliably say hey at the exact same instant nine out of ten times. Um, and so, uh, they all, so it seems to me that what they're after isn't one particular style. I mean, they're willing to go out and butcher Purple Rain on stage. They play fugues. They play, you know, bluegrass covers of Who songs. Um, but it seems to me that what they're after is that moment of communion with one another, of saying hey at exactly the same instant. Mm -hmm. um, and what the audience chases, uh, I've only seen 30 fish shows. If this were a room full of fish fans, I'd be embarrassed to only have seen 30. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, I think there's a dude in the back who's seen like 300. Okay, and that's, sorry. That's average. Um, uh, it, it seems to me that what the audience is chasing is that improvisatory moment of total synchrony, of, of you know, if you call it a mind meld, if uh, the Grateful Dead refer to it as the, the group mind, um, you know, that, that experience that exists, that cannot exist on record, that can't be turned into an artifact and sold, um, it can only be experienced as a, as a, as a communal, as a collectively created uh, moment, which then passes, and then you have to chase it again the next mm -hmm. night, um, which is why they're anti-pop. They've never had a hit single, they've never had a hit album, um, they've never had any record label support, their one video is an atrocity. Uh, the only way you'd have seen it is on Beavis and Butthead, which is where I saw it. Um, and so, but they are, in the 1990s, they were probably the most popular touring act in the United States. Um, something to the tune of $150 million with no, with no pop culture visibility. And maybe I missed something, or maybe I'm just the wrong generation, but what is strange about a bunch of 20-year-olds taking drugs and playing music all day looking for a moment of, of great community? And <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I mean, maybe, maybe I, was, I, mean, I was a shut-in <laughs> writing, my, writing my little books. So I, right. I have no idea. Sounds it's pretty freaking awesome to me. <laughs> Man. <sighs> Why didn't you okay. tell me before I wrote the bloody book? Great, let's dive on in and we'll begin to weave it together. Uh, Alan Light, take us to Prince. The, oh, I should say first, Fish is a live one from Walter Holland. Alan Light, let's go crazy. Prince in the making of Purple Rain. Well, it only really literally just occurs to me listening to these guys talk. Um, and maybe this is the grand scheme and design for this panel that none of us were aware of going in. But Prince hey. really does sit at the exact midpoint between what these guys are talking about. Um, I think that, that a remarkable thing for better and for worse about Prince's career is that he, he doesn't know whether he wants to be a big stadium-filling pop star with huge hits on the radio mm. or whether he wants to be the world's biggest cult artist with a million people who mm. will follow him no matter where he, does, no, where he goes or what he does. Mm. Um, obviously, he wants both, but you know, you see him turn the dials one way or another, um, very aware of this is what I need to do to go out and fill arenas. Okay, this is what I need to go off and, and do for my own music. Um, Purple Rain represents the astonishing moment when both of those things fully 
came to power. Um, just to go back, way, let's go way back to the beginning of this panel when you were walking into the room. So before we heard Fish singing Purple Rain and before we heard Britney and NSYNC and The Weeknd, um, I just want to talk for a moment about that clip of, of Purple Rain that was playing when you guys walked in. So that performance of Purple Rain, and I must say, if he knew we showed that, we would all be in so much trouble. <laughs> but it's an amazing he, story. It starts the book. Pulls, he pulls anything. If that goes up online, he pulls it down the next day. He's obsessive about not letting uh, the internet control which of his music is out there. Um, so extra, extra credit to the uh, book festival AV department for uh, grabbing that while they could. And if you videoed it and put it up online, you may have prints on your doorstep tomorrow. Um, or more likely that, his attorneys. So that performance of Purple Rain, not only is that the very first time that Prince played that song on stage, it is also Wendy Melvoin, who is the guitar player who plays the introductory riff there and then plays with him. That was her first show with the band. 19 years old. She's 19 years old. Their first show was at a benefit at, at the First Avenue Club in Minneapolis where a lot of Purple Rain was shot. That version is the version that went onto the record and was used in the movie. It's edited. There's a verse that's dropped. The guitar solo is edited a little bit. But if you heard that vocal, that's the vocal that we all know. That's the falsetto that we know. The very first time he went on stage to play with a new lead, a new guitar player in his band, that's the version that 30 years later is burned into all of our minds. Think for a moment about the discipline, the rehearsal, the prep that goes into him putting any song on stage if that's what he's capable of the first time that he presents material. So that's an incredible performance. Um, and I think that what I le learned about, thought a lot about in, in writing this book is the incredible audacity of this guy. Um, I mean, we all know that. We all know that you know, Prince is the most badass genius musician of his generation um, that I guess, as they used to say about Ginger Rogers, that she was a better dancer than Fred Astaire because she had to do everything backwards and in heels. Um, he also pretty much has to do everything backwards and in heels. Um, in heels, we know that. <laughs> but. Know. Well, playing and singing and dancing and writing and the full song factory is all this one guy. You know, people talk about the Minneapolis scene and they talk about it like at that moment, um, this was something, you know, the punk scene or the Seattle scene. Well, the Minneapolis scene was one guy <laughs> who could do all of these things and attracted all of this stuff around him. The fact that the Purple Rain film was made makes absolutely zero sense. Um, in retrospect, you look at it and you think, well, this was a big, huge movie, and it was kind of inevitable that this guy who was this big star would go on and play the Super Bowl and, and, and be one of the, the best-known musicians in the world. And remind us everything else that came out of it? I mean, Grammy, Oscar? Well, it was most notably, it was, the, it was, was the first time in history that somebody simultaneously had the number one single album and movie in the country. Uh. But when he went in to make this movie, this was a guy who had kind of one and a half pop hits. You know, he was not a huge star. He was a he was a rising pop star. He was a guy. They don't just give feature films to everybody who has one hit. And in fact, most of the rock stars who had tried before him, Jagger and Dylan and Paul Simon and all these people made movies that were terrible and were huge flops. Mm. He had this vision that was so far beyond everybody and his team thought he was crazy. His managers didn't get it. They took it to Hollywood. Nobody in Hollywood understood it. They didn't know who Prince was. He was one, you know, this was this 
this, this young kid, and he said, okay, we're going to make this movie. I'm going to be the star. My band is going to be the rest of the cast who've never acted before. We have a first-time director, and we're going to shoot in the winter in Minneapolis. Well, that's good. That sounds like sure a thing. huge blockbuster. I mean, that's, that can't miss, right? But <laughs> in an he, abandoned bus station. But he could see that, you know, kind of learning the lessons in the way that Max Martin, in the way that these song, you know, autodidact visionaries do, he knew what he needed to do to translate this kind of crazy funk, rock, guitar, dance, you know, music that was unlike anything else, what he needed to modify to take that to world-conquering scale. He knew that what he needed to do was, okay, if I need to read as a rock guy, I'm the lead guitar player, I'm going to move out front. I'm going to be a guy who leads a band, not a guy who works by myself in the studio and creates all this stuff, even if half the record is kind of that. Um, It was very much framed as a band project. Um, I'm going to move some things around in my band so that it's going to be black and white, male and female, going to give everybody a way into what it is that I'm doing. And I think that summer of 1984 was an amazing moment where you had Purple Rain, Born in the USA, mm-hmm. the Jackson's Victory Tour, Madonna's Like a Virgin. It was the first year of the, the, yeah. the MTV Awards. Um, it, it was the biggest explosion that pop music had kind of ever seen and took things to a very different scale. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really the last time that you saw these kind of projects that everybody had an, an opinion about everybody had a relationship to purple rain was something that the rock kids and the dance kids and black kids and white kids and male and female, you just, after that, you never saw thing. It got so big that that center couldn't hold. And I think that what he did with this project was see that he could, you know, he could create this universe. He had this small universe in Minneapolis. He could take that, take that around the world and, and make a new kind of music and a new kind of audience for music that I think kind of then plays out into all the other stuff that these guys are talking about. Alan Light's book is Let's Go Crazy, Prince in the Making of Purple Rain. Let's dive in, and let's stick with Prince for just a second. You quote Wendy Melboyne. Still blows my mind. She was 19 years old. It was the first time she'd performed this publicly, brand new to the band, The Revolution. And you quote her saying that at that time, Prince's band, in their world of The Revolution and Prince, everything, everything had a desperate importance and nothing took priority over the other. Every moment that you were in Prince and the Revolution had to be like your last day on earth. Make that real for us. What's she talking about? How did Prince create that? Um, Prince has essentially, I mean, through for his entire life, really, Prince has created this, we were talking about this before, kind of an alternative universe that he lives in uh, that is really dedicated to him being able to create 24 hours a day, no matter where he is, no matter what the circumstances are, um, that everybody around him knows. If it's 4 o'clock in the morning on the phone, there's a story that I love. Uh, Susanna Melvoin, who's Wendy's sister, who Prince was dating during part of this time, who went on to sing with one of his groups. She actually sang the original Nothing Compares to You many years before Sinead went and took it, made a hit out of it. Um, But Susanna said you'd be asleep. The phone would ring in the middle of the night. It'd be 3 o'clock in the morning. She'd pick up the phone. He'd say, where are you? And uh, she'd say, I'm asleep. And he'd say, wrong answer. I'm cutting hits. Click. (laughs) And you just had to know that you were uh, there was there was no such thing as downtime. There was no such thing. You were always working. The music was always being created. The music was always being refined. Um, things that were done very spontaneously, 
like that performance of Purple Rain or this amazing, you know, he wrote When Doves Cry, one night overnight, given an assignment by the director saying, I want to cut this montage scene. Um, we're going to cut this thing where you'll be on the motorcycle and it'll just flash to a lot of things that are going on in the movie. I need a song that goes for that. He came in the next day and handed him When Doves Cry, which is like one of the handful of greatest songs ever written in pop music. Um, it could change on a dime like that. People could be in or out. Songs could be in or out. Arrangements could be in or out. And that was what you were signed up for. I want to ask each of you, uh, and we'll just start right here, where these songs come from. We'll go to Fish and ask the same thing. We'll go to the, the factory and ask the same thing. But where do Prince's songs come from? I think they come from uh, this, this incredible digesting of so much music and so many different kinds of music. I mean, this is somebody who says he, you know, learned, he, people compare him to, to Jimi Hendrix and he says, well, if you listen, I play more like Carlos Santana than I play like Jimi Hendrix. People say Jimi Hendrix because I'm black. That's not who I play like. Um, who came up learning, playing in dance bands, cover bands, playing Earth, Wind and & Fire songs and, and, and old funk songs and, and learning and drilling that catalog as hard as possible. The Purple Rain songs are a little bit different in that there are some that were sort of written some were already existing and kind of gave a framework to the film, and then some were written for the film. They were a little bit more on assignment, again, than, than a lot of his songs. But, you know, being around him, I've never experienced anything. I mean, I've just, I've never seen anybody who music is passing through constantly all the time, and, and, and that's why he needs to, if he needs to work, if it's, you know, the middle of the night in Dayton, and he's ready to go, the band's on call, a studio's ready, everything's ready to go, and that's how it is that he works. Um, so, I, you know, it, it, I think it's, it's harvesting all of all this that stuff, intake. taking all of that in, learning it to a point where it is absolutely interior, and then, you know, this crazy psychology of his that comes out. Walter Holland, take us into the hall or the room with fish. We, we hear what comes out. What are the inputs there uh, uh, beyond the drugs? That part we get, that part we hear, but that's just, that's a catalyst in a way. What what are the traditions, impulses, training? What what goes in? What's gone in? Um, The chief songwriter of the band is the guitarist, uh, Trey Anastasio, who's in college. He, so they all ended up at Goddard College, which is this, it's basically a bunch of hippies screwing around in the woods in in Vermont. It's barely a college. It's on their website, right? My niece went there. Yeah. I mean, David, David Mamet uh, dropped out. I think almost everybody drops out. Um, It's, it's it's what it's there for, but it's, it's an an ideal uh, sort of self-teaching in environment. Uh, it's sort of the Sudbury School model taken to, uh, but with puberty happening. Um, and so he, he was actually studying big band swing. Uh, and um, Big band swing. Yeah, and so he like, right. is, he basically as a kid, he grew up going to the mall. He's, he gets somewhat defensive about this in a, in a documentary about him. It was made in 98, Bittersweet Motel, terrible movie. Um, he, Why? He wants to have grown up on the plains of Mongolia or something? Well, because, you know, people, people he would complain. People look at me and they, they say, you're going to be the next Jerry Garcia or you want to be the next Hendrix. He said, I didn't grow up listening to the deep music that those guys were imbibing as kids. I would go to the mall and I was in the mall in Jersey and I'd listen to Bruce Springsteen. And then I would go home and I'd listen to ACDC uh, and Van Halen. And I was it just drinking in whatever sort of pap was coming down, coming down the pike uh, from pop culture. And um, not to denigrate Bruce Springsteen. Um, and he basically had to go out into the world and find sophisticated music. Um, and he is, he's one of these guys who, in interviews, you'll see him playing air guitar while talking. 
Um, he can't shut it off. And he occupies, I, I think in much the same manner as Prince does, he occupies this paracosm, this like private universe where uh, he's in a kind of constant dialogue with whatever spirits are surrounding him. What's the sophisticated music that he went down? Uh, so he, um, to start with Zappa, one of the like towering intellects in, in late 20th century music and certainly in rock, um, he got really into Pat Metheny. You can hear that all over his, uh, his guitar playing, but you can also hear that in terms of his approach to, there's a kind of pastoral quality that to river. their writing. Yeah, there's this, there's this kind of forward rushing, uh, feeling in their writing. Um, you know, they, they'll study, they'll do boot camps where for a week they brought a guy from, uh, the aquarium rescue unit on tour with them. And they just played bluegrass, played acoustic bluegrass every day in the practice room all day because they didn't feel they were good enough at it. There was a period where all they were listening to was James Brown and Meter's records because their funk was a bit embarrassing. Um, they're constantly dinged as the whitest band in the world. And so they thought, well, we can address that. Funk it up. Yeah, so they, they put on a Meter's record, they start playing with it, and they turn it off. And then two minutes later, they turn it on to see if they had lost the groove. And they always had. Um, and so, so they, were, they are the whitest band in the world. They, well, they are, but then they spent six months sort of remediating and trying to, like, trying to sort of let that music sink into their bones. Um, and so they're, they're omnivores, they're musical omnivores, and they're guided by this one extraordinarily uh, generative uh, composer. And Anastasio can't shut it off. And so they have, I don't know, they have something like 300 originals in their catalog. And in any given touring year, they'll play two-thirds of those. And they're just always on the table. He used to set himself exercises where he'd say, we need a set closer in E minor. You know, we need uh, a mid-tempo tune in A to follow these other tunes. And he just, he can just crank it out. Um, yeah. John Seabrook, the song machine. Now, you've described on any given song, there may be 50 people with inputs, creative inputs, and maybe more than that by the time you get there. Yeah. But <clears throat> I just ask you the question, where does this music come from? How, how do you answer that? There's a famous line attributed to uh, Sammy Kahn, a great songwriter from the old days, when asked what comes first, the melody or the lyrics, he famously answered the phone call, meaning, <laughs> meaning the label guy saying we need a song. And, uh, you know, these guys aren't writing songs for the purpose of uh, albums, uh, making artistic... They're, 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 they're doing one thing and one thing only, trying to write hits. So they write lots and lots of songs, and they throw almost all of them away. And they save the ones that, that they think are hits. But Max Martin himself, he's a very interesting character. Um, he began as a performer. Uh, he had a... Had a the Ur-Swede guy in this realm. Yeah, he had a metal band called It's Alive. I recommend looking up the video. It's kind of amazing. He's a beautiful singer. He sings all of the demos himself. The demos are the most artists, when they record a song, these artists that we listen to, when they record those songs, they get a demo from Max Martin singing the song exactly the way he wants them to sing it. And they follow him exactly, he insists on it, exactly the way he sings it on the record. So millions and millions of people know these songs, perform these songs, no one, except for a very few people, have actually heard the original. Of the Describe a specific example of that. Max Martin is in the room or on the phone or <coughs> Skyping, FaceTiming, and Taylor Swift is listening? Or give us No, no, they're, they're, he, he, so he makes a record, and I actually got to listen to one of these demos, the very first one, uh, Britney Spears, Hit Me Baby One More Time. 
He and all of those things you think of, bay, 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 you know how it starts out. That's him. That's that, not you, Britney, you hear his that's voice? Not Britney Spears riffing. No, it's exactly the way he sings it on the, and yet you can never hear the original. So that's a very sort of odd aspect of, um, of Max Martin, and it is one reason why in this game, uh, and one of the things in my book which was the most interesting is, these guys who create these songs, are there's not very many of them. I mean, Max Martin isn't the only one, but there's really only a handful of people that can perform at that top 40 level consistently, which is kind of ironic because supposedly technology has democratized this whole process and <coughs> can make a song on your laptop, you can pull down all the samples you want, you don't need session musicians, you know, it's much You're cheaper. You're talking Dr. Luke and Esther Dean right. and the, but, there's, but there's very few of them that, 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 that can do it again and again. And they, they have uh, this just kind of intense magic ability. And then they have the relationship with the artists who have to, as one person put it, the artists are like, they're creating flavors like uh, a chip flavor or a soda flavor, but the artists are like the actual chips or, or the sodas that the flavors go into, and then they become the songs. But, um, you know, and, and what, what the final thing I was going to say there is, so they're asked to remain anonymous. They're asked to sort of remain behind the scenes. But, of course, human nature is such that, you know, you want to take a little credit. Yeah. And in the case of the hook writers, the Esther Deans of the world, they want to be artists themselves. But, and ironically, the more successful they become as songwriters for other artists, the farther their dream of being artists recedes from them because nobody wants them to keep their great hit songs for themselves. You know, they want to give them to Rihanna or Katy Perry because they have a much greater chance of becoming hits. And so that's this kind of interesting conflict that all these people live within, and that kind of speaks to where those songs come from. What is the relationship then between the factory and these major figures in it, this Swede and other Swedes, the Norwegians, a lot of Scandinavians in here, plus who begs whom? Does the artist say, please, Max Martin, give me, give me something, or does Max say, please, Taylor, sing this, or what's the power dynamic? I'm pretty sure that Taylor Swift came to Max Martin. Um, I know from Taylor's side that she did, yeah. Yeah, I think, so Taylor Swift's a fantastic example of what happens when you hook up with one of these guys. So Taylor Swift obviously had a very successful career as a singer-songwriter coming out of Nashville with a Nashville sound, and she got, you know, pretty big, but then she made the decision to hook up with the, this guy, Max Martin, and her last eight hits have all been written with him, and now she's playing stadiums, and she's the biggest pop star in the world. What is her input exactly, then, <coughs> into these songs? Mainly the words. She, Mainly. But she, does, she, sends, she breaks up with somebody, she writes a lick, a lick about it, she sends it to Max <laughs> in Stockholm, and he sends back a hit song? Well, I, I think more like he's got the hooks, he's got the sound, she comes in, and then she's, she writes the words. The words probably come. But I, and I think the, for, in the case of Taylor Swift, again, I think it's important because there really is like such an old Taylor, a new Taylor, sound-wise, that the lyrics are the bridge. So, you know, in blank space, even though it's written, it sounds very different from, you know, her older songs, it's totally electronic, she's still talking about, you know, her boyfriend troubles and, mm -hmm. and stuff, and so that kind of makes makes it seem like, oh yeah, that's the Taylor we know. But in fact, there's been many changes in Taylor Swift 
at, over the course of this progress of her career. But I remember back in the day when a, a singer-songwriter would come out with a song and we would listen so closely again and again to try and dive very deep into what was going on in their heart, in their psyche, right. in their world. This presents something different. Some of the words are hers, but well, this isn't her creation. So what, what are... Uh, but if what, I can jump... Yeah, yeah. That, you know, this, there's, a, there's in fact a longer tradition... Right of this than there is of the singer-songwriter right. tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's obviously this dramatic break with the Beatles and with Dylan, you know, where there right. became this expectation of... Pour your heart your out. Own, this is your creation, right. your creativity. You know, if you look at even the Motown model, most obviously, yeah. you know, Holland Dozier Holland, who wrote all the Supreme songs and the Four Top songs, they even had a melody guy, a lyrics guy, and a hooks and concepts right. guy. Right. They did a very similar division of labor um, that resulted in saying we don't think that you know those records are any no, less authentic, sincere, you know, valid rock and roll records because of the right. way that they were created. Yeah, so there's come, a continuum gonna, that this is that this totally. is clearly part of. We're going to come for your questions in a minute, but let me put this to each of you. I'll start with you, Channel Prince, for a moment. <laughs> Channel, you you're close. You're in there. I need and to... think about Fish's music <laughs> and think about the song facts. <laughs> When Prince listens to these, what is Prince thinking about Fish, about these huge hits that come out of the Song Factory? I think that um, he would have, you know, I think his interest in Fish would be an interest in the audience, an interest in having this, you know, passionately devoted following and what's that about and where does that come from. I think he could, you know, understand and respect Trey as a player, but I think would scoff at that as a as the construct of a band uh, does he like to improvise in public himself oh he certainly does but it's around it's all it's it's funk and rhythm based um it's about precision and dynamic in a very different way than what than what uh fish is about and i think he respects and understands you know pop songs i mean he obviously has an, an incredible sense of them um though his very seldom abide by these rules um i mean most famously when dove's cry is you know was sort of the big huge breakthrough single there isn't a bass part on when dove's right. cry he took the bass out which is part of the reason that it feels sort of edgy and and off mm. um and i think prince the the person that i think about a little bit in parallel is stevie wonder where there's somebody who you can see a moment in their career where they just got bored writing hits where they felt like I can I could do that before breakfast. Yeah. I know how to write a hook, yeah. and that's not a challenge to me anymore. And we all want them like that's what we love them for. Go do that. But you can see that they were straining against that and decided to go someplace else. Mm-hmm. So I think that he would respect what those guys do. I think he would sort of want to get inside the mechanics of it, but also feel like I know how to do that, and I I, I needed to go do something else. Uh, what about fish? If they look at anybody else these days, if channel them for a minute, looking at Prince. Looking at the Song Factory and the giant hits now? So um, the guys in Fish now in the early 50s, and they have uh, a number of them have kids, uh, some, are, some are off to college. And they occasionally cover uh, modern pop songs. They played uh, I Kissed a Girl, actually. I saw it. It was a nightmare, as you'd imagine. Um, but again, they got the drummer in the dress to sort of get out. And they, they're, always, they're always sort of singing out of the side of their mouth when they relate to contemporary culture. Meaning? Um, meaning there's, there's a... Tongue-in-cheek. Or... Yeah, there's, a, there's an ironizing uh, quality to a lot of their work, partially because uh, I think all of them feel, to an extent, estranged from that. Yeah. You know, one of them, uh, they're, they're, all, they're all a bit nerdy. They're all a bit abashed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, they, uh, so my suspicion is that they, they all have some amount of respect for, for pop craft, 
Um, but that none of them, and, and Anastasio actually talks about this occasionally in interviews, that he'll listen to a pop song on the radio and will fall in love with it. But what the music that they tend to relate more deeply to is the stuff that clearly comes out of a creative crucible, out of, a, out of a, an all-encompassing vision. So uh, he talks about favorite albums like uh, Poses by Rufus Wainwright, mm -hmm. which only sounds like one human being on Earth, you know what yeah, I mean? Yes. Uh, or My Bloody Valentine's Loveless, which uh, only sounds like one sort of weird robot romance uh, on drugs on Earth. Like, it's, it's, yeah. it's this, one, this one very pure example of something that doesn't exist outside of that room. Um, and so they adore, he, he and they adore uh, guys like Prince. Singular. Yeah, and because, they, because there's, there's always somebody at the center of all these stories, in the case of Max Martin or a Prince or a Trey, there's always somebody who exerts, exerts themselves to create an environment congenial to whatever free-floating creative urges that they have. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then it, it, the, sort of as they get older and as they're, if they're able to protect themselves from money, basically, yeah. um, they're not as subject to the buffeting winds of, of pop and of yeah. money. Yeah. Um, so Taylor Swift never had a chance, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She was in that current really early. Mm -hmm. um, and because nobody noticed Fish for the longest time, and because Prince was, uh, like he was, he was only known to black audiences for the longest time, mm -hmm. and so he was able to operate sort of outside of the rules of that mainline, uh, basically financial exchange, which is pop music, um, as, as, as I understand it. Um, and so that, those are the artists mm -hmm. that I think that last longer, and that's that older ideal. In a way. Yes. That's, that, that's that sort of Dylan-esque ideal. And what about your super pop hit maker maestros as they look out on the world, if they look at Prince, if they look at Fish, everything else, is it all just fodder for them? Is it all just a sea of hooks? Well, or... it's interesting, you know, in the case, again, going back to Max Martin, it's a, it's one of my favorite parts in the book is when he, he was in that metal band called It's Alive, and they were not total, they weren't very fish-like, but some of the guitar sounds were actually um, somewhat fish-like. But secretly, he loved the Bangles. But he couldn't tell, he couldn't tell his other band members that he loved the Bangles, because they would, they would hate him if he did. And I know he was going home and listening to Manic Monday. Eternal Flame was his Written by Prince under the name Christopher Nevermind. Oh no, Alexander Nevermind. And, Sorry, and, and I wonder, did he write that song for himself and then, and then the Bangles just happened to make a hit out of it? Or did he write it for the Bangles? That one I think that he wrote for them because he was, uh, you know, chasing Susanna Hoffs. Oh, uh, yeah. Singer, lead singer of the Bangles at the go. time and wanted to uh, yeah, who wasn't? get in her good graces. <laughs> yeah. So I think in he presented what? them with that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, at any rate, I know that Prince is, you know, the 80s are such a huge time in today's pop music. If you, if you listen with an ear to what the 80s, if you know the 80s music, and particularly like, you know, big, the 80s were such an important time in terms of like the kind of edgy metal sounds coming together with the pop sounds, and Prince was such a huge part of all of that. And, and kind of that's what's coming out today. And I think that's true probably of all these hit makers, even though they're, you know, sort of uh, the creatures of our time, they're also creatures of their youth and their times and what they listen to. And, and then again, and that's why music tends to, I think, come back in 20 year cycles sometimes yeah. because the hit makers are playing stuff that they learned 20 years ago and recite, you know. And with love later. Uh, stories from, I mean, questions from you all. Do, are there questions in the hall? I, I've got plenty, but if you've got a question, um, stand up and there, shout. Or him. Here comes a question. <laughs> Sir, sing right. out. Okay, thank you. Um, I remember seeing an interview with Bob Dylan on 60 Minutes where he talked about the fact that he couldn't write the songs that he did in his 60s. He was almost alluding to the fact that something was flowing through him. It wasn't really him doing it. 
And I'm just wondering, in the, in the essence of the artists that you've been exposed to, how much would they say during their peak creative output, it was really them through their discipline and hard work and skill, or how much was there kind of an aspect of a, a mystical quality that was coming through them when that... Uh, it's a little hard to hear from up here, but are you saying how much is, it, is honed skill and how much is like divine inspiration? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think in... in Something... I, I think it's, a, it's a good observation, and I think... Um, you know, Dylan is fascinating that way because anytime you read any interview with Dylan, he won't even use the phrase, when I wrote that song. It's always uh, when that song was written. Uh, it's always that it's, it's a thing that, that comes through him. Um, and I think a lot of, I mean, Neil Young talks about it that way. All the sort of guys who write songs for you and, and reach those kind of heights seem to talk about being a lightning rod or an antenna in that way. But I think that, you know, also a lot of that is being is being ready to catch that. I mean, a lot of that is being prepared and disciplined and having put in the time that if it's coming through you, you know, the, the mitts open to be able to, mm. to snag that thing. So I understand that they feel this sort of mystic relationship to it. But I also think if you look at any of those guys and at their, their own immersive backgrounds, they l learned and studied and practiced 10 hours a day and went through all of these things to be able to trap that and turn it into something. If you, I may, you, you describe Swedish education with a lot of music yeah. in it as not unimportant for, for, the, for them. And Fish, what's, what's flying through their cosmos when they... I mean, when they... Uh, Carlos Santana uh, said once that um, when he plays, he feels that the music is water passing through him, that the audience is the flowers, and he's just the hose, which is really sort of a mundane metaphor. It's kind of an awkward metaphor, but it's also, it's become really important in fish fandom. Like, when people talk about the ecstatic peaks when the music is, it seems to be flowing from some sort of divine or whatever essence. Um, they talk about it as hose, as a hose moment. Um, and as, and I may not like the word, but the sentiment is actually really gorgeous. A new metaphor for a peak moment. Yeah. Well, so the, really the flip side, the flip side of that is that the guy, the, the chemist who discovered the structure of the benzene ring, um, he, it came to him in a dream. He dreamed about the worm, uh, Ouroboros and, uh, the snake, uh, forgive me, the snake Ouroboros eating its tail. And he came into the lab and he said, ah, I got it. And he sort of draws this aromatic ring. And then the, the other, the other fellows in the lab are celebrating him and toasting and saying, man, you make it look so easy. Why were we working so hard? And he said, Visions come to prepared spirits. Hmm. Visions come line. to prepared yeah, the, the spirits. Discipline, the discipline is everything, and the vision's happening all the time. It's just a matter of, you know, did you put in your hours? John, how do you guys think about that? Because you've written, and part of what comes out of your book is this sense of engineered music. Yeah. That they've identified a formula, almost like Doritos has right. for our taste palette. They've done it for pop music. So is it d Divine Inspiration makes a Dorito? Yeah, there's a, the book actually begins with this anecdote that Dennis Pop, who was Max Martin's mentor, this guy named Dennis Pop, another Swede, got a, a, a cassette from an unknown band at that time called Ace of Bass, and they wanted him to produce uh, their, their song. He put it into his car cassette player to drive home, listened to it once, hated it, but when he went to try to reject it, he realized it was stuck. And his radio was broken, so all he could listen to for a week was this song. And, and, Divine intervention. And after listening to it for a week, he suddenly realized, this is a great song. And I kind of feel like that's what these songs are like. That's the Stockholm Syndrome, you know. You listen to it once, and everything about your body and your mind tells you you don't like it. 
but then your brain gets used to it after three or four times and because the hooks are simple and the brain can complete the melodies just before you do your brain starts to like it and you have no control over that and then you like it. I mean, are we being debased by their music or Well, this elevated? is a big question. I mean, this is the question I think that we're ultimately touching on. Which, who makes the better music? Is it the factory manufactured guy? Is it the singer-songwriter guy? Or is it the band all working together? I mean, it's three totally different approaches. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that most people would say the manufactured music is the crap music because it is manufactured. I'm not sure if I agree with that, but that, that's an easy position to, to, to fall back on, I think. There's, it seems to me that what, what, there's the issue of planned obsolescence, uh, to be honest. Like, we, um, you know, you expect to change your phone every year, and your phone is probably the most gorgeous piece of machinery you've ever held in your life. I mean, it's a magnificent creation, this thing, but I'm going to throw it out uh, probably in, in six months or something. And there's this idea that that's true of pop music as well. Like, how often do you talk about pop songs that were on the radio three or five years ago, but the number of people who will travel across the country to see Prince, you know, play for two hours starting at 2.30 uh -huh. in the morning, this is a shocking number of people with whom that, that, that feeling has stayed. Mm. Uh, and people don't get sentimental about their iPhones in the same way. A uh, question that I was hoping Alan could tackle first, but for each of the panelists, yes. you referred several times to Prince and how much he is controlling of his image and every sense is that he's a very reclusive uh, individual. So what I'm wondering is what kind of access or lack thereof did each of you have to your subjects and how did it inform or constrict your writing? Two quick answers. Um, I've done a lot of work with him over the years, so I've spent a lot of time with him which led me to number two, which was that I knew that it wasn't even worth asking him about this book. Um, because the one thing, even when Prince surfaces and decides to sort of be public or do interviews, he will not talk about the past. Um, not in any kind of, you know, embarrassed or protective way. He, he constantly needs to be looking forward into the future. I happened to be with him doing a story when it was the 20th anniversary year of Purple Rain, he said, listen, I don't think about that stuff. I don't deal with anniversaries. I don't deal, you know, I know what it was to do that. I know what it took to make that. And we did it. And All done. we got to keep, you know, we got to keep moving forward. Part of that, of course, is really frustrating as a fan in that you want to hear those stories and you want to hear, and it's not like he doesn't play those songs. He still keeps them in what it is that he does. Um, but I think it is really important to him to not turn into an oldies act. And to, you know, when he's out there, that there's a reason for it and that he continues to create, which he has managed to do in a way that, you know, many of his generation have not. So I didn't even deal with him for the book, which made it, I couldn't go to people and say, I couldn't go to his band and say, I'm writing a book about Prince. Click. That would be the end of it. I could go to them and say, talk to me about making Purple Rain. Talk to me about your what you did and what your involvement was and then wherever from there. And everybody was pretty receptive to that. So uh, I felt like, you know, I, I can give some sense of him and then it's got to be sort of the shadow through the, through the story. We are rapidly eating up the clock, but one more. First of all, I feel really connected to my cell phone, just saying. <laughs> so um, with this cyclical return of the paradigm of the, the song factory machine, what does that mean for the current garage band um, and, you know, little singer, songwriter, folk singer? Um, what role does the internet 
play in all that in terms of upcoming bands and such? And what does it mean for commercial radio, um, where we've got all these other ways that bands can get their music heard and we don't necessarily rely on the record company or the managers and that factory that's going on. Great. Each, each of you take a quick whack and I'll it will be your summation. So one, yeah, because, because my book takes place during the era of the so-called long tail when exactly what you're talking about was, was supposedly going to be the case that these hits were going to become less important because people would have a chance to go down the tail and find the things they like. But... Instead, they seem to become more important. And I think that's maybe partly because everybody has all these choices, but no one has figured out what to listen to next. And so you sort of fall back on these kind of mainstream hits that become the glue that kind of holds us all together. Um, there was an article in a, in a business journal pretty recently about fish as a business, and part of the reason they've done financially so well over the years, uh, despite having no hits at all, no radio play, no pop culture visibility, <laughs> hi, my son, um, is that what they sell is an experience that can't be packaged and that can't be reproduced. They're anti-reproducibility. If they play the song the same way two nights in a row, their fans will throw a hissy fit. Um, and so, so the secret to their success is give the audience something that's true in the moment that brings them to one place that, that is an experience, and don't worry about artifacts. I mean, artifacts, they end up in junkyards. Don't worry about artifacts. Alan, wrap it up, take us out. Um, we are living in a time of, uh, this stuff is, we have no idea what any of this is going to look like. Yeah. We are not even at the leading edge of what music and the music business is going to be 10 years from now, um, including a, just a dramatic recalibration of scale. There are more possibilities than ever to return to the question for singers to get their music up by themselves, to make it in their room, to upload it for people to be able to hear it. There are an infinite number of choices to be able to get to, and how do you break through and make any kind of impact. Mm. Um, one thing that I wanted to look at, again, with Purple Rain and that moment, was it felt like the last time that the, there was really a cultural center to music. Mm -hmm. Even the biggest of these hits, there are huge segments of the pop audience that never heard them. I mean, mm -hmm. Taylor Swift doesn't exist the way that, and I love Taylor Swift, by the way, doesn't exist in the culture the way that the Beatles did, in the mm -hmm. way that Michael Jackson did. It's a different kind of stardom because it is so exploded now. There's a lot of that that's really, really exciting. There's a lot of that that we have no idea what it's going to come out looking like. Um, I, I think all of these pick up on you know, different, different pieces of that kaleidoscope. So we'll see where it, where it takes us. These three beautiful men and their minds and their books will be at the back. If you want to buy a book, talk to them immediately after we wrap up here. John Seabrook, The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory. Walter Holland, Fishes, A Live One. Alan Light, Let's Go Crazy. Prince in the Making of Purple Rain. Thank you very much. Thank you. We will go out with Prince. Thank you all. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.